0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of our Hockey History Podcast. I am Riley and I am joined by Bill.
1: Uh, hello, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing all right, thanks.
0: And today we have a sort of slightly different episode than normal. Normally we talk about one player is eligible, one player who has been inducted recently, and one player who is an old-timer who has been inducted for a long time. And we're going to do an additional player today because we are talking about the Sedin twins who... Uh, recently retired from the NHL, so they won't be eligible for three years, but their NHL careers are over, Uh, though by the time you hear this, they will have been retired for months. But uh, this just happened a couple weeks ago. And uh, so we're going to talk about them, and then we're going to talk about Dave Andrzejewicz, who was inducted to the Hall of Fame last year in 2017. And finally, we are going to talk about New Zealand, one of the NHL's early stars. So to get started, um, we've decided that the only way to really handle the Sedin's is together because they played together all their careers, and uh, and they're sort of they're a very unique thing, right? There's never really been, there may have been other twins in the game of hockey, there have never been twins that have been this successful, and who have played their entire careers essentially together, right? So. Um, to that end, uh, we are going to uh, try to cover both of them at the same time as if they were one player. so <laughs> um, so we have I, I, I mean, we were thinking of alternating, uh, you know, bill will do daniel i'll do henrik and we'll just go through everything and then we'll talk about them at the end because because there's two of them there's a lot of stuff
1: yeah a lot of stats
0: yeah a lot of stats double the stats really so um so we'll start off with the career which is uh the nhl career they played from 2000 to 2018 obviously they just retired and that was 17 seasons
1: Yeah, uh, Daniel had 14 quality.
0: And Henrik had 16 quality. And then for their career totals.
1: Uh, Daniel had 393 goals, which is fourth all time uh, for a Swedish player. Um, 648 assists for 1,041 points. um, And that would be the fifth Swede all time. Plus 147 in 1,306 games. Fourth for a Swedish player all time. 123.1 123.1 point shares, which is fourth for a Swede, and 17 minutes of average time on ice. If the qualifier is set to a thousand games, Daniel's the fourth sweet all time in goals per game and points per game. Daniel's the fourth sweet all time in offensive point shares.
0: And then for Henrik, uh, fewer goals, 240 goals, 830 assists, which is the second sweet all time, and 1070 points, which puts him slightly ahead of Henrik uh, Daniel sorry, as the fourth sweet all-time. This is going to get confusing. <laughs> uh, plus 165 in thir- uh, 1330 games, which is the third sweet all-time. 108.6 point shares, which is uh, sh- way less than his brother, it's worth noting. Um, and then uh, 1730 ATOI, so it's higher than his brother. Uh, go figure. Uh, the qualifier is set to 1,000 games played. Henrik is uh, the Swedish leader in assists per game all time, and he is the fifth Swede in points per game, just behind his brother. Yeah, On the draft class.
1: The, yes, the draft class. The legendary 1999 draft class. Yeah. Patrick Steffen, first overall, Yes, in front of the two Sedins. Then they got drafted together by Vancouver, and they did a whole bunch of finagling to switch picks so that they could actually just announce them both together. Like, hey, we're drafting both these guys. Um, which is kind of a cool thing because Burke likes to make a big splash at the draft. Um, And ironically that draft took place in Boston, which is sort of weird. Um, (laughs) Just one of those things. Right. Um, And um, worth noting that in that draft class, uh, really the only other two players who I think would get hall of fame consideration, one of them's a lock, uh, Henrik Zetterberg drafted in the fifth round. Um, Yeah. And the only other one that I think would get Hall of Fame consideration is um, is uh, Ryan Miller, and uh, he was drafted quite late as well. So uh, it's really sort of a sort of a nondescript um, yeah. entry draft class. It was really not a good year. I think uh, let's see the next best first rounder. Uh, oh, Martin Havlat was drafted 26th. He had a pretty decent career.
0: I mean, had he been healthy, he would have had, had a been healthy. better he would career. Would have been very good. Yeah. that's true. Yeah, uh, yeah. But like, but still, like, that's that's, that's not. A big off,
1: Yeah. It's um, not good. But, uh, Barrett Jackman was there. He had a pretty solid NHL career. Um, yeah. But I mean, like, nobody that really jumps out at you until you get to round five with Ryan Miller. And actually, sorry, I think Zetterberg was later than that even.
0: Yeah. Zetterberg, Zetterberg was right near the Ravata end.
1: In round seven. Yeah. So wow, yeah, it's a it's
0: a brutal draft, yeah,
1: yeah. Just one of those years, you know. Just uh, and some of the guys looked really good, didn't sort of pan out. But I, I mean, I think that was the reason that um, Burke was able to actually get the second and third pick. Like they had one of them, yeah. To be able yeah. to be able to get that high of a pick, it's just that people sort of didn't value those picks that highly that year because they sort of knew it was a weak draft, and it's sort of yeah. it really sticks out as being pretty awful compared to all the other ones. Uh, before and after yeah Um, all right um so when it comes to their draft class daniel drafted second overall um they said they actually said they drafted him second and henrik third because daniel was born like 10 seconds before henrik or whatever That's,
0: that's funny he
1: was the first born one so they drafted him first um so he was second overall he's from his draft class he's first in goals second in assists um to his brother i'm guessing yeah um and uh, and points, and third in plus-minus, as well as second in games played.
0: And Henrik, drafted third, is fifth in goals, first in assists, points, and plus-minus, and games played as well. So uh, the players that would have been between um, the two of them in the draft class, Will Zetterberg, uh, is the first the one who would be uh between the two of them in goals. Uh sorry, and verbata and Havlet have all scored more goals than Sedin, uh, Henrik which is not a surprise because he doesn't score a lot of goals. Um yeah, anyway, um otherwise very similar. I think I I wrote that a little weird though and when I said it out loud it didn't make a lot of sense. Uh yes, fifth in goals first in everything else basically.
1: Yeah. Basically, yeah. yeah. Um So for their era of the five players to play in at least 1,250 games between 2000 and 2018, Daniel is second in goals, goals per games, points per game, and offensive point shares, third in assists, uh, assists per game, points and point shares, and fourth in plus minus.
0: And Henrik is fourth in goals, Goals per game and offensive point shares, and he has second assist, assist per game, and points, third in points per uh, game, and plus minus, and fifth or last in point shares. And the other players in that group are like Joe Thornton, and uh, oh, I don't remember off the top of my head, but um, Marlowe, Thornton, Marlowe. Um, I can't remember the fifth person right now. Maybe Shane Doan or somebody like that.
1: So it's pretty good company. Yeah. Um... Their 82 game averages, so for Daniel, 25 goals, 41 assists for 66 points and a plus 9.
0: And Henrik, 15 goals, 51 assists for 66 points plus 10. It's almost identical.
1: It's Everything they do is just ridiculous. <laughs> um, their three-year peak from 2008 to 2011, Daniel's 82 game average, 37 goals, 62 assists for 99 points
0: and, and... A plus 33 and Henrik, uh, there is a difference here 82 game average of 23 goals 72 assists 469 points um or 70 points well, something's wrong there um some yeah. of the math is wrong there uh That's that would wrong. yeah that would be that would be 96 points i, I think it's possible that i'm slightly dyslexic uh plus 28, Wouldn't it be 95 actually it, well yeah but uh one of those are probably rounded so ah, okay. it could be 96 or 95 anyway it's it's uh, doesn't matter, but that's pretty funny that it said 69 because I was like, the, Why are they so different? Yeah, they're not different yeah, at I, all.
1: Yeah, oh, well, that's it, exactly. They're usually you know, for their entire careers within like a certain number of points of each. other. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the uh, the possession stats uh, for Daniel, uh, he has a uh, a uh, 55% uh, Corsi and a 7.2% relative Corsi. A fifty-four point one percent Fenwick and a six point five relative Fenwick uh, of the eighty players who've played in at least seven hundred and fifty games since possession was tracked. Daniel is sixth in core C four. He is first in relative core C four and for uh, and Fenwick four ninth in Fenwick. Uh, so uh, that's sorry, that's weirdly written again. Uh, ninth in Fenwick four. I'm guessing that's relative Fenwick ninth.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, there's relative. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. yeah.
1: Good yeah. guessing. And, uh,
0: uh, and Henrik uh, is uh, 54% Corsi, 6.6% uh, Corsi relative, 53.6% um, Fenwick, and 5.7% uh, Fenwick relative of the 80 players who have played in at least 750 games since possession was tracked. Henrik is ninth in Corsi four, second 2nd in relative Corsi, um, and Fenwick, and 12th in Fenwick. Now, um, it's just worth noting, obviously uh that's a lot of players. The 750 games does knock out a few people that who would be in this group. Specifically, I believe Datsuk might not make that group for that particular time period and also Bergeron for example. But that being said, those numbers are beyond dominant. They're literally among the very best possession players in the history of the NHL since uh the NHL started tracking the stat. I just wanted to mention this at this moment because I think it's notable. And the other thing is that if you look at their relative Corsi and relative Fenwick, it's also clear that the rest of their team was not. Um, yes. And this is something that I think we will want to talk about when we finally, when we finish the stats summary, because that's worth noting that you know, first in relative Corsi and Fenwick and second in relative Corsi and Fenwick for all, all those 80 players over those, uh, those 11 years means your teammates were not necessarily the, the world's best.
1: Oftentimes they were doing a lot of, well, it's been Vancouver's problem. In addition to never having a goalie, you can stop anything in the playoffs since Kirk yeah. McLean, um, their big problem has always been that they have one line that is just like dominant ever since the Naslin Bertuzzi days. Yeah. Um, And so when that line's on the ice, you almost can't stop them, but then the rest of their team is just sort of meh. And, uh, you know, if you can, if you can slow down that first line, they're in big trouble because they handle the line share of the scoring. Um, And so in the playoffs, when you get matchups and you really learn how to know all their intricacies, it gets a lot easier.
0: Um, And then, Possession stats, bear that out, because yeah. they're literally the one-two <laughs> in, in relative Corsi and Fenwick.
1: Um, okay, so they're adjusted stats. Um, Daniel would have 442 goals, which would be the third suite all-time. He would have 712 assists for 1,154 points. He would be the fifth suite all-time.
0: And Henrik would have 272 goals, 909 assists, which would put him 17th all-time, with, uh, regardless of nationality, and the second Swede all-time uh, behind uh, Lidstrom, I believe. And uh, that would give him 1,181 points, which would put him fourth Swede. And then the adjusted 82-game average. Uh,
1: Daniel would have 28 goals and 45 assists for 72 points.
0: And Henrik, we have 17 goals, 56 assists for 72 or 73 points. Again, there's a rounding error in there. But basically, once again, exactly the same as each other. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you assist on all of most of each other's goals. Sort of. Um, The adjusted points per game. With the qualifier of 1,250 games, neither Sadin is in the top 25 in adjusted points per game. Yeah.
0: Um, And neither of them were ever traded. Uh, so now we move on to the accomplishments, and we're going to start with the major the awards that they have won.
1: Yeah. So Daniel won the Ted Lindsay in 2011, the Art Ross in 2011, top five in heart voting once in 2011.
0: And Henrik won the Heart in uh, 2010. He won the Heart Ross in 2010, and he won the King Clancy in 2016. So slight differences in their awards. <laughs>
1: Yes, very slight differences in their awards, but just the difference between the heart and the Ted Lindsay is basically the only thing, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, and I mean, essentially, one's voted by the players and one's voted by the media, so it's yeah. basically like, and and they that, those were their two years they won the Art Ross, so they each won a scoring championship. It's yep. like, oh, you got, you got one? Well, I better get one now, too, so yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and I think the year that Henrik won his two Daniel was out for quite some time, so he actually yes. ended up scoring a bunch of goals. And everybody's like, wow, he can score? But like, yeah, well, if he doesn't have anybody to pass to, I guess he'll just shoot. <laughs> so um, it was pretty interesting. Um, top player. Um, Daniel was a top 10 player by uh, point shares once in 2011. Best offensive player by um, offensive point shares once in 2011. And top 10 twice, so in 2010 as well.
0: And Henrik was a top five offensive player by point shares once in 2010 and top 10 twice in 2011. It's worth noting, just to point out while we're going through here, the reason why Henrik has way fewer point shares career-wise and the reason why he's not rated as well as Daniel is because most of Henrik's points come from assists, not goals. And hockey reference point shares favors goals over assists. Just just FYI, that's why there's the discrepancy there.
1: Yeah, it's it's totally it's totally obvious. One was the goal scorer. One was the. I mean, yeah. even though, even though Daniel ended up with a significant um significant number of assists, more than goals, but he was the goal scorer of that line. You know? yeah. so, um, so for goals, Daniel scored forty goals once, thirty-five goals twice, thirty goals four times, twenty-five goals seven times, twenty goals eleven times.
0: Henrik scored twenty-five goals once and twenty goals twice.
1: For the assists, Uh, Daniel tallied 60 assists once, 50 assists four times, uh, 40 assists seven times.
0: Henrik tallied 80 assists once, 70 assists three times, which is he's one of only 16 players ever to do so. 60 assists six times, he's one of only 20 players ever to do so, 50 assists eight times, and 40 assists ten times.
1: Um, For points, Daniel scored 100 points once, 80 points four times, 70 points seven times, 60 points 9 times, 50 points 11 times.
0: And Henrik scored 110 points once, 90 points twice, 80 points 5 times, 70 points 8 times, and 50 points 12 times. Slightly healthier.
1: Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, he was uh, a little a little luckier with the injuries. Um, uh, for goal leaderboards, Daniel was top 5 in goals once.
0: And Henrik was never.
1: <laughs> yeah, we, I think we could have guessed that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Goals per game leaderboards, Daniel top five in goals per game once.
0: Henrik never.
1: Assist leaderboards, Daniel top five in assist twice.
0: Henrik led the, uh, led the league in assist twi- uh, three times, sorry, and he was top five six times and top ten eight times.
1: assists per game leaderboard, Daniel top five in assists per game thrice.
0: Henrik led the league in assists per game twice. He was top five five times and top ten seven times
1: the points leaderboards, Daniel led the league in points once and he was top ten twice.
0: Henrik led the league in points once as well. He was top five twice and top ten four times.
1: The points per game leaderboards, Daniel was top five in points per game twice.
0: And Henrik was top five in points per game twice as well and top ten three times.
1: Um, The plus minus leaderboards, Daniel was top five and plus minus twice.
0: And Henrik was top ten once.
1: Um, all star Daniel, first team once, second team once. Um, one monthly three stars, seven weekly three stars, and three all star game appearances.
0: And Henrik was a first team all star twice. He was, he's had five monthly three stars, three weekly three stars, and three all star game appearances. And now we are going to move on to great teams.
1: Um, Let's see. So the uh, Stanley Cup runner-up in 11. Um, Daniel it says here's the top six forward.
0: Yeah. So I knew I would have to clarify that. Yes. So okay. this is by ice time. So believe okay. it or not, Daniel actually played the fourth most uh, minutes per game of uh, all the forwards on the Canucks that year in the playoffs. Oh,
1: yeah. That would, that would make sense because Kessler basically lived on the ice, and I would yeah. assume Burroughs.
0: Yeah. It was, was it was Kessler, Henrik, Burroughs, Daniel.
1: Oh, that makes
0: sense. And and given that uh, they all had similar-ish levels of points, mm-hmm. my my general, you may disagree, but my general uh, attitude is, given that defense is also part of the game, is to go with the player, ever since they started publishing Ice Time, go with the player who played the most Ice Time. And yeah. in this case...
1: I think that, that speaks more just to the fact that, because both, both Kessler and Burroughs would play uh, would play a lot of penalty kill time, yeah. and the Sedins were never killing penalties. Absolutely. So. Yeah, actually, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised to hear that Henrik wasn't the time uh, time on ice leader, actually. Might have been... Yeah, no,
0: it was absolutely Kessler by a, a, a significant amount, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But that I will look sense. it up. Um, Anyway, yeah, so that's why... I mean, obviously they played on the same line, so it's a little ridiculous to say one was a top six forward and one was a top three forward, but like, if you do it by ice time that is actually what happened in terms of their, and you're, but you're absolutely right. The reason for that, of course, is because of penalty kills. Yeah. Okay. Uh,
1: um, so yeah, so Henrik was a top three forward. So, um, yeah. now for the Olympics, they were both part of the, uh, Olympic champion in 06 uh, Sweden. Um, Daniel was a top six forward uh, with a question mark by points.
0: And uh, sorry, and uh, I was just <laughs> I was I was checking on that, and Kessler played five hundred and sixty-five minutes in that playoff, and Henrik played five hundred and twenty-four. Wow! And then Daniel played five hundred and five. Okay. With Burroughs playing five hundred and seventeen.
1: Okay, yeah. So it's r- and r- they had
0: r- Kessler had nineteen points, Sedina twenty-two, Burroughs had seventeen, and and Henrik had twenty-two, and Daniel had twenty. So,
1: pretty, pretty much like four first liners, you would kind of say. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Just because so,
1: technically Kessler was on the second line, but just played so much because um, he could just do everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, anyway, back to uh, the Swedish Olympic champions. Uh, Henrik was also a top six for, uh, forward, as far as we know, by t- points on that team.
1: Yeah. I actually don't have any sort of dispute with that because that was like the one Olympics that, well, Canada crapped out because it was in Torino. Yeah. Um, and I was living in Japan at the time, so I like barely watched any of the games. Like I don't even remember watching the gold medal game, which is like unheard of for me. Um,
0: just, well, like, Alfredson and and Mats had more points on that team, so that's why. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, who, who who was uh, who was on the top line? It was Matt Sundin and.
0: I think Alfredson and uh, I can't remember the third player yeah. uh, right now. Um, but maybe it was maybe um. Did Forsberg play that year? Is it possible remember. he played? No, I don't remember now. I have to look it up.
1: Uh, was, that, was Zetterberg uh, big time yet? Or?
0: I don't think he was quite. I, I don't.
1: I would bet I he was on the team, but I don't know that he was on the top line. Um,
0: yeah.
1: Oh, um, Marcus Naslin must have been on it.
0: Yeah. You know what? Um, I don't know if Sadines played with Naslin, though, or whether Naslin played with Mats.
1: Yeah, I, I want to, I want to say they they played with somebody else. Like, no, not Hornquist. Um, somebody like that though, where you're like sort of he was, he was great, but you wouldn't think of him as being like the. I guess he just played well with the Sadines, but I can't remember what his name was. Um, well, if we
0: go by who the leading score of the tournament for them, it was Alfredson and then Mats, and they both had, um more points by a few points than the Sedins. So that's why I just, without, you know, watching video, it was like, okay, well, the Sedins were on the second line. That was my oh, guess. Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, at that point, Max was still a yeah. dominant number one center. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I can't remember for the life of me who they played with. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't like for, in terms of Olympic hockey watching, I've watched more of the most recent one with, uh, with the Crumbum players. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. So the next one, they also were on an Olympic runner-up, uh, the 2014 Swedish team.
1: Yeah. Um, Daniel was a uh, top three forward by points.
0: And Henrik didn't participate, which is, I think, the only instance here that we're going to see that. I believe he may have been injured. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, he must have been. Otherwise, I'm sure he would have been on the
0: team. I mean, yeah. Come
1: on, how... It- how do you take Daniel and Henrik? That makes no sense. Yeah, um, yeah, he must have been injured. Um, I think that's the only times they've never played together. In yeah, league.
0: yeah, I think so. It's certainly, that when I was doing the research, that's all I ever noticed. Yeah.
1: Um, world Championships. So they were part of the uh, World uh, World Champion uh, 2013 Swedish team. Daniel was a top three forward.
0: And Henrik was made a media all-star forward, which is, I guess the next level down from the tournament MVP. Um, it's just worth noting though, that their stats, I don't remember what they were off the top of my head, but they were very, very similar. So it's weird that he got picked in Daniel. Didn't.
1: Yes. That's typically, they usually pick the center, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, but I remember them being a really big part of that world championship, like watching them on the ice being like, wow, they like, they're really all over the place kind of thing. Um, so yeah. I do you remember that one? I remember like what a significant role they had in that team. So I feel like um, they probably played a very significant role in six for Sweden, but that one was sort of like a the 2013 World Championships felt like the Sedins went out and sort of like they were the leaders. They were the guys who made sure they they won that tournament kind of thing. Yeah. Um they had a bronze medal for uh, uh in 99 for Sweden. Um they were both role players at that point because they were very very young they had just been drafted in the
0: nhl i believe that would have been right before they were drafted the right that
1: right is before they were drafted you're right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. um the bronze bronze medal oh one sweden um both top nine by points so yeah. um a little more significant role but i mean it at that point, they were sort of being ridiculed for getting pushed around so much in the NHL because they didn't really have any sort of uh, man strength yet. Um, yeah. So, you know, it took a while for them to sort of uh, become more dominant players. Um, yep. In the NHL, at least.
0: And then uh, we have uh, the European Under-18 Championship, which I believe has been replaced now by the World Under-18 Um, but back then in 1998, uh, Daniel was possibly the best forward in, uh, the tournament, or at least on the champion. And Henrik would have been top three because he was playing on the same line. And then we have the world under 17, um, which they were also played on, um, which uh, it's worth noting because they're Swedish, you know, uh, sometimes the Canadian players, we don't have this because there's only a certain number of Canadian players who would make it onto this particular team. Um, so they, they were a runner up in 1997 and Daniel was uh, a top three forward and Henrik was considered probably by points the best forward in the tournament. That's my best guess anyway. So that is the long, long, long story of the Sedins. Um, I, have to, I must admit that I am a person who generally prefers passers to uh, scores just from an aesthetic point of view. I, I like... I like players who are really good at setting up other players slightly more than I like good goal scorers. But I go doing this research and going over their careers. I'm kind of, despite the fact that Henrik had um, the better peak by total points for that one year, where he outscored. You know, he had 110 or 111 points in one year, and Daniel only had 103 or something the uh, the other year. I kind of feel like, um, Daniel, though he had the slightly shorter career was a little, slightly better.
1: Well, I mean, I, I feel like, I feel like when Henrik didn't have Daniel with him, he sort of showed maybe the type of complete player he could have been if yeah. he wasn't always looking to pass first. Cause he had a bunch of goals that year and he was sort of leading the team. Cause he was just the one guy on that line and didn't have his usual you know, the guy that he would always be able to set up for a goal. So he's just like, okay, if I can't pass, I'm just going to start shooting. And, you know, he doesn't have the greatest shot in the world, but he learned how to place it very well. And just instead of always looking for the pass, which he did have a tendency to do now, luckily he was a good enough passer that sometimes he'd give it, he'd pass a puck and you're like, why didn't you shoot that? And then there's a guy wide open. You're like, oh, never mind, You saw a guy <laughs> like, luckily he didn't he didn't pass them up and always look you know like you get some of those players where you're like oh my god shoot the puck like everyone knows you're going to pass it if you yeah. if you just basically slid over and covered daniel and like draped yourself all over and be like fine i will shoot then you know so yeah. um, he did have that ability just didn't use it i think enough because he just figured well i'm gonna set up daniel and he's gonna put it in kind of thing so
0: yeah, yeah. i also I find it's interesting because they didn't play as long as some people, right? Like they, they played, you know, 1300 games is, is yes. It, it puts them in the top five players, NHL players from Sweden, but it isn't a lot compared to say Dave Andrichuk, who we're about to talk about, uh, who played in, you know, another, uh, uh, 300 and something games. Um, so, you know, four more seasons or whatever. Um, I I find that, like, if you look at, like, even if you adjust for error, I I, I noted that you adjust for error, they're still not in the top 25 players all time in points per game. And that's interesting to me because I kind of assume they would be. Um, And some of that is, uh, I mean, I I, I don't know what all of that is, but I assume some of that is um, because of the fact that they only played 1300 games. Um, yeah. And that is less than uh, a lot of other people, but it's hard to know. Um, and so there, there are there's a few things on their resume where I, I kind of, there's a voice whispering in my head, you know what? Like, I don't know if this is a slam dunk. And then I look at those possession stats mm-hmm. and I go, like, maybe if you lower um the game requirement below 750 which is then starting to get meaningless that they're gonna they're, they you know might get knocked out of the top 10 uh, but i don't know and like 55 percent Corsi or 54 percent coursey is elite and oh, yeah. this is something that we stupidly didn't pay attention to for a very long time because people for some reason, didn't think shots on goal were necessarily important. And um, as we have briefly talked about before, it's a proxy for possession. It's not actual possession, but it's the best thing you can do to estimate possession and possession matters. Possession. The reason why it's tracked now is because it correlates highly with, with goals and success. Yeah. And I think as a way of regardless of like, The fact that they you can look at them and say really they had they both had one year where they were extraordinarily good and then they had other years where they were just good and there's other players that we've talked about in the past who have had more than one year where they were very very good or great and there will be many more i think that you need to sort of we not not you specifically bill but the royal you um <laughs> need to recognize, you know, that we we know now that puck possession is an extremely important point, uh, part of uh, having a successful hockey team, and that these guys were as good at it as just about anybody, as far as we know. Period, and um, particularly, and and we're and we as you already noted, were unfortunate enough to play on a team in which they were. Much better than everyone else at that particular skill. Um, I mean, so much better that they are for that period and for that uh, for that game's requirement. The the most drastically better than their teammates of any uh, any players in the entire NHL. Um, so I think that for me, the 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 doubts that I have about their case are erased by that. And, and the thought that what would have, ha- what would their career look like if they had been on a team with, you know, had like, had Naslin in their careers overlapped more, had they been closer in age, for example.
1: Yeah, well, that's the thing too, with the Steens. It's like, you take a look at their line mates over their career and it's like, Alex Burroughs is the best line mate they ever had. And then next is probably Anson Carter. And then after that, it's probably Jason it, King
0: Bill then, Samuelson.
1: Yeah. And then you're just starting to get into guys or you're just like, who, what? Like, yeah, Samuelson is a five. Mikhail Samuelson was an okay player, but I mean, like, you know, I, I was kind of joking. Well, I know, but he, he, you know, he did score 30 goals a couple of times. Like he wasn't useless, yeah. but I mean, it's not like they ever played with, you know, a dynamite legit first line right winger, um, yeah. but, you know, a guy who could score 40 goals and then they would get to set a guy like that up. You yeah. so know, it's like they were taking probably 15 to 20 goal scores and turning them into 30 goal scores, like just by virtue of playing with those two guys. Cause they always have the puck. And if you just put your stick on the ice, they'll eventually find you kind of thing. So,
0: yeah,
1: I think for the early part of their careers too, or actually most of the careers, they were just, you know, severely disrespected and you could get to push them around cause you knew they wouldn't fight. And, Vancouver had a whole bunch of uh not so adept fighters who wouldn't jump in at the right time and um and just sort of like the you know, the referee just sort of let them get pushed around, even though they, you know, played the game in a very gentlemanly way and sort of uh you know, would like, you know, great competitors, but would never sort of do anything really dirty and try to play the game the right way and that kind of stuff. Um
0: and, and just to to follow up on that, you know, I I mean you're, I mean, you know, it's safe to say you're a Canucks fan. You might be a little biased in this regard. Oh, but as some, yeah. as someone who doesn't have a stake in that game, I watched the 2011 finals too, and I, for me, it sticks out among the finals I have watched in my lifetime as being utterly ridiculous in the degree to which, um. A certain team was allowed to get away with shit that we were not supposed to have anymore because we had supposedly entered this new era um, you know where players would be given space to play and it's Mm -hmm. one of the uh, it's one of the playoff series where I've wondered like why the rules that they're supposedly trying to enforce in the regular season don't exist in the playoffs and I, I now I must say that as a Canadian I I was prone to that ridiculous Canadian thing that some Canadians hate, but other Canadians still do, which is that I was cheering for a team, any Canadian team to win because frankly, it's been 25 years now and uh, this is getting ridiculous enough with these like sunny Southern us teams winning uh, the cup. But anyway, that's another story, but I was slightly biased, but I do feel like that final in particular demonstrated the ref's willingness to sort of let them play when it matters most rather than enforcing the rules when it matters most, which you, of course, would think was when you should enforce the rules is when it matters most. And I I do think that had it, had the refs had a different attitude, it is entirely possible, not necessarily likely, but entirely possible that we would be talking about a team that won the cup.
1: You would, you would think so, but you also had Tim Thomas playing out of his absolutely. That is
0: very true. That is very true.
1: Historic rate like, of like, no one has ever played this well in a final before. Um, and Boston just basically figured out that like, once they had uh, Craig Ramsey was the coach, really good coach, um, and he sort of figured out Vancouver's power play. So it was like, if you guys do take penalties, they're not going to score.
0: Just, yeah.
1: Do the, it, it actually reminded me of the Czech Republic back in Nagano where they would just stack a bunch of guys in the box be like, we dare you to shoot the puck through this many guys. And our goalie's just going to like come out and challenge every shot. And if you, if you almost get to a puck before we do, we're just going to cross check you down and either take the penalty or you're just going to take a beating. Like we're just, we're just going to clear the front of the net once the shot is taken sort of thing. And it worked really, really well for them. Um,
0: Yeah. And that was a good point about Tim Thomas. I completely, for some reason, I completely forgot about him. Yeah. he, He played out of his mind.
1: Yeah, totally. So, I mean, those two factors combined where there was, and the thing was too, it's, um, I feel like, because I watched the Boston Tampa series before that too, just to sort of play devil's advocate as much as I can here to try to be as fair as I possibly can. <laughs> uh, keep in mind, I have not had any beer, so I'm less likely to fly into a murderous rage. Um, <laughs> um, but. I watched a lot of the Tampa Bay and Boston series, and a lot of stuff was getting let go in that series. Like,
0: oh, um, I didn't mean specific to the oh. the Sedin's yeah. so much as, like, they they definitely they did not benefit from that because they're the yeah. kind of players who who uh, specifically well, yeah. don't benefit from that, right?
1: But but the, the point I was trying to make was that. I think they ended up with either more of the refs or just the general refing style of uh, the Eastern Conference a little bit more than the West. Yeah. Before that, they had played uh, San Jose. Vancouver had, and Ben Eager lost his mind and hit one of the Sedins from behind one game, and they went on a five minute power play and scored a bunch of goals. And like the referees did, like call penalties, and the Sedins just dismantled San Jose in five games because they every time they got a power play they scored. Um, When they played against, yeah,
0: I will say as someone who generally goes to sleep on eastern on eastern hours i definitely have always throughout my life watched more eastern conference hockey and and if if you know i have always heard stories about the how the west is a more open game and i only see glimpses of it in the playoffs you know um but i i mean i certainly do sometimes see glimpses of it uh, though i'm not sure lately because i haven't necessarily watched enough games to Say that, but um, but yeah, like I've definitely noticed, um, and I I, I don't want to say this year, but I've definitely noticed in some post lockout years where we are supposedly in this era of you know more open um hockey that that sometimes the referees, especially with the, uh, a team that plays the way Boston does, the referees feel like they're somehow cheapening the game. If they call the penalties that they see all the time. And yeah. I don't have any actual evidence to back that up. Um, cause I haven't gone in and like looked and see if like there are fewer penalties called or, um, in, in like for teams that have reputations like that or whatever, but it definitely, I always felt that way. And even when the lease aren't playing them, um, and I've just, I've, uh, that's something that bothers me because, you know, I, I would prefer to see if, if something's against the rules, I would prefer that to to be called regardless of whether it's an exhibition game or the Stanley Cup final. Um, but anyway, I just I just bring it up because I, I do think like they of all of, of, of many of the players of the generation, they definitely were penalized in situations like that.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And if you if you look at their career stats, right, like when they came into the league, it was a very clutch and grabby era um, from, you know, 1999, 2004. They played they, their stats weren't great. Yeah. Um, and then when the when the NHL came back from the lockout and said, we are going to call absolutely everything. And therefore, you could no longer pin one of them to the boards or hook the guy to slow him down just a little bit the thing is they're not fleet of foot guys right like they're never just gonna blow past you but they'll get a half a step on you and with that half a step they'll spin around and hit somebody with a pass and bang it's in the net and you're just like how'd they do that but if they don't get that little half step if you're allowed to hook and hold them a little bit more than you're supposed to be allowed to you can render them much less effective like maybe not you know ineffective but the, the, uh, the level to which they can cycle and maintain puck possession is greatly reduced if you're allowed to get away with more on them. And they don't have the physical skills to be able to skate through it, power through it. Like it's just if you can sort of, if you can put an extra hold on them, they're really not going to be as effective. And the NHL was very wide open from 2006 to about 2011, 2012. And that's when their career numbers are through the roof. And then once... You know, Boston won the cup and then the very next year LA won it with a very similar style and like this suffocating defense. And the league sort of it seemed like there is a trend to revert back towards that big heavy hockey and just, yeah. you know, crash and bang and make sure you're, you know, you like not entirely the way it used to be, because it used to be just dump it in and annihilate them until they don't want to play anymore <laughs> back yeah. in the old days. Um, But it's like we're going to hit them and get the puck back and spend all of our time forechecking in their end. Um, And that's like a very heavy game to play in the style of 2011 Bruins or the 2012-2014 Kings. Um, And so, you know, it's really Chicago was the only other team to break through in that era. Um, And one of them was the lockout shortened season. So, I mean, it's sort of – and I think they beat the Kings in – I think they beat the Kings in like overtime that year or something like that. Like those two teams are super evenly matched. So, um, that like style of play sort of crept back into the league. And I think now they're sort of trending away from it, but when you see it in the playoffs, they still don't want a game to be decided by one team getting six power plays. Cause one team's just lacing into them. They just sort of don't want that. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's a came from the fans or came from the NHL. Um, but like, I do remember them talking about when, because uh, right before Boston went to the final, they ended up beating Tampa Bay in seven games. And the seventh game was one, one nothing on a game in which zero penalties were called. Um, <laughs> but the thing was, the, none of the players did anything so egregious that you're like, you have to call that a penalty. It's sort of they realized that, like, we can play hard, but if we do anything ridiculous, we're going to get called for it. So let's play hard, but stay within the rules or at least not force the ref's hand to call this penalty. And it was, a, it was a great hockey game. And so I think a lot of people before that 2011 final and had seen the Vancouver San Jose series turn into like eight power plays a game um, for one team, sort of said like, well, it's better when you have not as many penalties and just let the team sort of play. But, you know, that's way more Boston style. And then, you know, after the Burroughs bite thing, then the whole series just turned into a like, let's see who can cripple each other. And that's definitely didn't fit into Vancouver's uh, way of playing the game, especially because they couldn't score on their power play to make them pay for any sort of cheap shot or big hit or slash behind the leg or whatever it was that did get called. If you can't score on the power play, what's to discourage them from continuing to play that way. If you're scoring yep. every time they take a dumb penalty, you're like, Oh, we should probably stop taking dumb penalties. These guys are going to kill us. So that was a big factor as well. Um yeah, it's weird that a lot of people seem to from that series. They seem to just be like, "Oh, the Sedin sucked, and the Bruins were too tough for them." They're like, do you remember Tim Thomas? He was out of his mind.
0: <laughs> so, speaking of things, do you remember? Do you remember when like the Sedin cycling was like, like a bit of a joke? Mm-hmm. Like, I find that it's so funny how things have changed because yeah. that was that was still back when we were all more naive and didn't realize or not all of us but many of us didn't realize the importance of having the puck you know having the puck instead of the stupid like I'm going to get rid of it so I can get it back strategy that the leafs have employed for most of my life um which when you think when you say it like that you're like wait a minute that doesn't make any sense why would you do that and i just i remember before the sidgins were really as effective like you said before the league opened up enough that they could um, that they could really dominate, people used to like mock them for like holding the puck in the the opponent's zone for a long period yeah, of be, time, yeah, and
1: they'd be like, you're "Holding onto the puck, you're not doing anything with it."
0: Yeah, like, well, you know what's happening? For one thing, you're not scoring. <laughs> you know, like, um, it, and it's funny because even someone like Daryl Sutter has come around to the idea that like. Possession wins games and but like there was a time when like it was it, the only people who who did it and weren't made fun of for being European and wussy were the Red Wings, you know, and everyone else was you know, it was it was considered there was something like unmanly about it It was certainly un-canadian and uh, And it's funny. I, I, I must say that I'm glad things have changed because as much as I don't want to see just players skate around in circles with the puck I do want to see uh, I like competence, you know, and I like people to be good at things. And I do think that like certainly they were extremely artful practitioners of being able to like like just pin another team in their own zone, you know, um, while holding on to the puck and while generating uh, lots of potential scoring opportunities.
1: Yeah, well, what? that's that's sort of what made them super effective, too, is, like, um, they're really, they were, you know, uh, like, they don't have the breakaway speed. They don't have the superhuman strength. So a lot of people would just say, oh, they're weak. They suck, because and especially because they don't fight either. But the endurance those guys had, like, like, I would see shifts many, many times that would be, like, 90 seconds long because as long as they had the puck, they wouldn't go off the ice. And yeah. um, there's a couple of shifts even that I think broke the two-minute mark where it's just cycle cycle keep the puck shoot it all the way around the boards tire out the team and then just sort of dismantle them and score a goal and you're just like man like that is like it's got to be disheartening for the other team where you just can't get the puck back yeah because they're so smart with it and they since they're not moving as much as you are <laughs> eventually since they you know they're just sort of skating around in these little circles and you've got to chase them eventually your dog tired and since they have the puck and they sort of know where they're going and they're able to just sort of glide around and stuff eventually they they're just you're exhausted and then they pick you apart and the only way to really like at the beginning of their careers they were trying to do that but the style of the nhl was the pin you to the boards and you were allowed to pin the guy to the boards for like four seconds so before you'd get a penalty for holding him so if you if they're cycling and it's the two of them sort of doing these little give and go plays and stuff if you're allowed to pin one of them the boards well then the give is done but the the give and go part is not going to happen because one of the yeah. guys can't move yeah. so the minute they were allowed to freely move all over the zone then you could kind of see what they actually were able to do and so yeah. i guess what had made them successful in international hockey finally came to the nhl you're like oh if you're not allowed to pin them pin them to the boards or trip them or give them a little shot, like to slow them down, they're going to keep the puck for a really long time. And then all of their line mates who were successful guys were guys who were like really good on the boards, like Burroughs, like Anson Carter, uh, like Jason King very briefly, and guys who would go to the net hard and put their stick on the ice because they would always be creating a scoring chance. If you know how to, you know how to get to the front of the net and slam in a rebound, you would score a bunch of goals playing with those guys and to keep the puck possession all you had to do was get involved in the cycle and provide them an outlet in case one of them got held and the other one didn't have any other options you know so
0: yeah yeah um,
1: and I'm, like there literally are shifts that are like i um, like a couple of minutes long and the other team's just hemmed in and you're like yep you guys are in big big trouble here yeah or even shifts where they didn't score but they just kept the puck away at the end of the game for like 2 minutes and the other team's trying to tie it up and they want to pull their goalie and they can't because they can't get the puck back um Those are just like good illustrations of it. And I think it's important to note too, like the level of intelligence and creativity that those two guys had, because they, in a way, in in a way they remind me of Gretzky in that when you look at their physical tools, you're like, how the hell was that guy good in the NHL? Like they look like they can't skate. They don't, they're not that big. They just sort of always seem to manage to put the puck in the net and then you're like, how'd they do it? And they would just figure out stuff that they thought would work and then, you know, practice it and execute it really well. And yep. you have these little creative plays they would do. Um, neither one of them had a devastating shot. So they, didn- they invented like a new move, which I- I'm sure somebody else like probably did it before, but I've never seen anybody do it as well as they do, where it's one of them takes a slap shot and the other one just deflects it, but like really high in the slot. So it's like, it's like a like the the slap shot is actually a pass, but yeah, a really yeah. really hard pass at to the top of the slot, and the other guy just tips it, and the goalie's like, screw off! I never saw that coming. And they would do it regularly, and it would work like all the time. I'm like, man, like that is that's a set play, and like nobody else really does that. And yeah. sort of they found a way to not need a gigantic shot to be able to beat the goalie from far out. Um, another good example, I remember watching a game once where. Uh, Henrik won a face-off, and he skated up and immediately slapped it as hard as he could into the corner of the ice. It should have been icing, but the first guy to get to the puck was Daniel, and he immediately roofed it for a goal. And I'm like, oh, my God, they meant for that puck to bounce out, like, basically back out to the face-off dot. And the goalie's like, oh, crap, I should go, oh, no, I'm stuck. And then, boop, scores. It was like, wow, you guys actually planned, like, an icing play. Where as long as you get to the puck first, you're going to score a goal. Because it's, it's like we put it intentionally into that corner. It's like, man, you guys are really smart. And they, I guess that's one of the ways that they were able to, in spite of the lack of their physical gifts, end up being, you know, these very strong possession players, and still with, you know, very good career point totals, um, in spite of playing, you know, in some clutch and grabby sort of eras um, for their time. I think people really sort of appreciated their greatness the last like year or so of their careers. Yeah, like, wow, these guys have been doing this for a really long time, and they're really good still. Um,
0: yeah, I think the attitude towards them has changed drastically mm-hmm. over the years, like drastically. Yeah, well, um, it only
1: it only took them about fifteen years to get some respect throughout the yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I assume you you think they should be in the Hall of Fame.
1: I think if you just looked purely at their stats, like you hadn't seen them play, you hadn't seen how dominant they could be, you hadn't seen um, them during those peak years, you sort of only watched the beginning of their career, or you just didn't follow it that closely, you might not think that they should be in. Um, Like, just based on goals and points, they don't look like they should be Hall of Famers. Maybe Henrik, because he was... Uh, his assist totals are a lot higher than most people that played in his era. Yeah. But I feel like if you consider the body of their work, the advanced stats bear bear out how dominant they could be. Um, the fact that they never really played except for those, those like three years of Vancouver teams, and they were always losing to the eventual cup winner. Um, you know, the Chicago Chicago, Boston, LA, they lost to the cup winner three years in a row. Um, yeah like that those are really really good teams but those were really good teams because Kessler became very good and the Sedins were like absolutely dominant like those were their three peak years so um I know they won a couple of president's trophies and I mean that was just the Sedins just like you know taking teams apart uh you know eventually in the third period teams would be tired from chasing them around and sort of put it away um so I, I feel like they should be in the, especially like how unique that sort of like twin thing was. Um, yeah. You know, always find each other with like this behind the back passion. Like, how did you know that guy was there? Like all this creative stuff. Um, and, you know, they have a pretty full resume and probably should have a cup on there. Um, they have an Olympic gold. They have a world championship gold. They have, you know, I mean, they've really, they each have an Art Ross. Um, yeah. I think Crosby was hurt in both those years, which may have led to that. But I mean, still, if you were finishing second to Crosby in those years, there's no shame in that, obviously. Um, And you would still consider that to be an absolutely fantastic season. So I I would say they probably will get in. Um, I could see people arguing that they probably shouldn't get in because the beginning of their careers, they, they weren't very good as young players. But I think that just sort of of speaks to how good they were once they actually started calling all the penalties in 2006, and then did so for five or six years, that those years they were dominant because they actually could, they were free to do what they were, you know, sort of should have been allowed to do the whole time. Um, So, and and then, you know, they started to trail off a little bit the last couple of years, but they still put up a a pretty good last year here, so... Um, and you know, of course, the you know, uh, they the, I think they're the kind of guys you want in the Hall of Fame in terms of like ambassadors to the game. You know, um, very low penalty totals. Uh, you know, sort of played the game the right way. The big donation to the Vancouver Children's Hospital. Um, you know, uh, when Daniel played in the um, the All Star game, the one where John Scott was the MVP. Yeah. Um, when he came back, he gave he gave all of his because I guess each player got seventy five grand or something like that or ninety grand. Um, so when Daniel came back, he, he split it up amongst all the Vancouver training staff.
0: Oh, so, wow. I didn't know that.
1: I mean, I mean 90, $90,000 to a guy who makes $7 million a year. Probably not that, like it's a yep. nice chunk. Of, you can do something cool with it, but to give 10 grand to let's say every guy on the training staff.
0: Yeah.
1: Those guys. Um, yeah, it was
0: really they, nice. I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. And then, uh, there was an interview with them uh, at the end of their end of season press conference. So they, they finished in Edmonton, right? So it was their very last game. So one of the reporters asked them, you know, uh, you're, you're two guys. How do you decide who gets to keep the puck from your very last game? And uh, they they gave it to Derek Dorsett. Because um, he earlier this year, he had his career ended by injury. He had to retire in uh, late November. And he was actually having a very good year for Vancouver, which is, you know, surprising because it's Derek Dorsett. But he was like... <laughs> You know, but uh, like he, he, they basically said, you know, we got to end our careers the way we wanted to end them, but he didn't, and it's a crappy thing for him. So we wanted to, we wanted him to have something special, and we thought that was kind of like a nice thing for him to have, and uh, huh. like, wow. yeah, pretty pretty awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't know about the humanitarian <laughs> stuff, but I, I think that, I, I, I think that they are. Uh, very similar to what you said. I think that if you look at the total numbers or you look at the brevity of their their peak and I think you could talk yourself out of it, but I think the reason we 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 have these advanced stats now is to to see parts of the game that were not being recorded previously. And we know that they did something extreme even without watching, but with watching in particular they did something extremely well, better than just about anybody else. And and I also agree with you with the twin thing. You know, like this is this is something I do. I sometimes feel that like even when a player doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame in terms of their stats, and I'm not actually saying that's true about the Sedin's. I think sometimes it's it's good to like, you know, honor the unique contributors as well. Yeah. And I'm not sure we'll ever see another pair of elite offensive. Twins, you know, is I'm this ever going right. to happen again? And I think that in and of itself is 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 worthy of note. And it just so happened that they were actually like really good. Yeah. And and uh, so I, I I'm I'm fine with them going into the Hall of Fame. I don't have a problem. I mean, I don't know that they will. I, I feel like right now, given the vibe yeah. around their final season, that I feel like they probably will. Yeah. Um, had you asked me that. You know the year before the first one of them won their art ross trophy i would say there's no way in they're ever gonna be in the hall yeah. of fame but things have changed yeah. um shall we move on to uh, someone who is in the hall of fame already
1: um yes let's do that
0: okay so um up next we have uh dave Anderschuk who was inducted in uh, last year, he's the last of the players we are covering who were inducted in 2017. And he is arguably, as we will get to shortly, uh, the most controversial though at the time, I don't feel like there was any controversy uh, about his induction. Um, I don't
1: think there was, um,
0: there, it's funny because in the years prior when he wasn't inducted and some people suggested it there. I feel like there was controversy about the idea that he should be inducted, but then when he was inducted, I don't remember hearing anything. Anyway, we can talk about that after, after the stats.
1: Okay. So Dave Andrychuk, uh drafted in uh, 1982, um, played from 1982 to 2006, 23 years in the league, 17 were quality um 640 goals which is 13th all time and was 11th all time at his retirement 698 assists for 1338 points which is 23rd which was 23rd all time at his retirement a plus 38 in 1639 games fifth all time fourth at his retirement um 124.6 point shares and 15.58 of average time on ice since 97-98. So you would assume earlier in his career he played a heck of a lot more than that. Yep. Um, especially given his power play time as well. Um, Chek scored 274 power play goals, which is the most all-time. Um, very good in front of the net, as I recall from his career days, especially when he was in Toronto there on that top line. Um, at his retirement, Chek was... 4th all-time in goals per game, 10th in assists per game, and 8th in points per game among the 10 players who had played in at least 1,500 games. Um, If the qualifiers dropped to 1,250 games, he was 14th in goals per game, but he drops out of the top 25 in assists per game and points per game. In his draft class, 1982, Andrew Chuck is 1st in goals, 4th in assists, 2nd in points, and 15th in plus-minus, despite being drafted 16th overall Um, some other notable names from the year that he was drafted uh, Brian Bellows went number two Scott Stevens went number five Phil Housley went number six Um, Michelle Petit went number 11 Um, Dave Andrew of course went number 16 Ken Danico went number 18 Murray Craven 17
0: Uh, Murray Craven
1: I know right remember that remember Murray Craven number 32 what a beauty um, he's an old Canuck, so I kind of saw him yeah, yeah. um, Patrick Flatley, uh, Gary Lehman, yeah, there's a Maple Leaf one for
0: <laughs>
1: Traded for Dougie Gilmore. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: uh, Thomas Sandstrom, who had a very nice career. Uh, Pat Verbeek, who also had a very nice career. Mario Gusling, a famous old Nordiques goaltender, if you want to get out your old hockey cards. Uh, Kevin Dineen, a very nice player. Um, Dave Ellett. Uh, Ray Ferrero, drafted way down in, in round number five and scored 408 career goals. Um, this was
0: a pretty deep draft.
1: Yeah, it was really good. Ron Hextall uh, in the sixth round. Uh, Tony Granado right after him, number 120. Well, you know, now that we mentioned Ray Ferrero, he's married to Cami Granado, so. Uh, and she was clearly the better bernardo <laughs> Um, uh, and then I think we, st- oh, and then Dougie Gilmore, speak of yeah. the devil round seven. Wow. That
0: would be why Andrew Chuck is not, um, yeah. you know, first in points in that, uh, draft, I believe.
1: Yeah. And then I don't believe anybody else really stands out after, uh, Dougie Gilmore. So. There's a few names that definitely made the NHL and you would remember them, but nobody should remember that guy. Uh, Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure.
1: So, uh, yeah, it's a pretty pretty remarkable draft year, actually, because there's quite a few few Hall of Famers or very close to Hall of Famers in that class. Yeah. Uh, I do like uh, revisiting the draft things very much, so I usually get a little bit sidetracked in that. Uh, (laughs) It's really fun to look back and see who got drafted where. of his era, um, of the four players to play in at least uh, 1,500 games between 82 and 2004, Andrew Chuck is first in goals and goals per game, fourth in assists and assists per game and point shares, third in points, points per game, plus minus, and offensive point shares. His 82-game average, uh, his 82-game average uh, would be uh, 32 goals and 35 assists for 67 points. His three-year peak from '91 to '94, his 82-game average would be 49 goals, 47 assists for 96 points. Um, of course, that was an era where a lot of players are going absolutely bonkers, yeah. so you have to sort of consider those numbers with a grain of salt. But it's still, you know, averaging almost 50 goals a year—it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, there is no possession information. <laughs> um, for the playoffs, 43 goals and 54 assists for 97 points and a minus one in 162 games. Um, his adjusted stats would be 605 goals, 645 assists for 1,250 points because he did play very during a very inflated scoring era for a good chunk of his career. Um, his adjusted 82-game average, 30 goals and 32 assists for 63 points. The adjusted points per game Andre chuck is not in the top 25 for adjusted points per game even if the qualifier is as high as 1250 games played um he was traded twice in his prime um, and played for a fair number of teams
0: yeah the rest of the time we're free agent oh okay stuff
1: yeah so. um his accomplishments
0: oh sorry yes that's me Q, Q me sorry uh i was just like oh i'm just gonna talk about the trade and then forget it um he was a top 10 offensive player by offensive point shares just once in 1994 he scored 50 goals twice uh back-to-back years uh 40 goals four times 35 goals seven times 30 goals nine times uh, scored 25 goals 13 times. He is one of only 19 players in history to do so. And he scored 20 goals 19 times. And there are only uh, four players. Uh, Gordie Howe, Ron Francis, and Brandon Shanahan are the other three. So good company there. He tallied 50 assists twice and 40 assists eight times. He scored 90 points three times, 80 points six times, 70 points eight times, 60 points 11 times, and 50 points 13 times. He was top five in goals once and top 10 twice. He was top 10 in goals per game once. He was top 10 in points twice. He was top five in plus minus once and he was an all-star two times.
1: Very nice. Uh, his great teams, he was a top three forward on one final four, the 93 Leafs, which he said stung the most because he thinks they, and everybody in Toronto, still thinks they should have been yep. the Kings that year. And yep. set, up, set up the the amazing Leafs Habs final that the entire NHL had been waiting for. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I think the Leafs would have won that cup. But, you know, just I, I don't think anybody can stop Doug Eagle more.
0: Nothing we can do about it now.
1: I know. I know. <laughs> Although, you know, Patrick Roy was out of his bloody mind. So who knows? Um, the. Uh, he was the captain and top six forward on one champion, the 04 lightning. Um, interesting to know that he was the captain, but definitely not the best player. Yeah. Um, Vinny Cavalier was the best player, but had been stripped of the captaincy after they gave it to him way too young. And
0: But interestingly it. enough, yeah. when I looked it up, he played a lot more than I remember him playing. Andrew Chuck.
1: Really? That's Really?
0: Yeah, so that's top six is ice time there.
1: Wow, that's yeah. pretty
0: impressive. I was surprised. I remembered him playing on the third line, and he may have played on the third line, but... In terms of maybe was I don't know if he was killing penalties at that stage of his career or what, or maybe had a lot of power play time. I don't know, but he his his uh his minutes I put I think put him uh, as the sixth most uh, minutes of the forwards on the Lightning that year.
1: They must have uh, that was still in the clutch and grab era, and he's a pretty big guy. They must have just had him out there because he you know the veteran know how to not make a mistake in those big moments. You know.
0: Yep. Yeah. Uh,
1: and in those days too, if you were a veteran, you could usually get away with just a slight bit more of hooking and holding a guy before they'd call a penalty. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, he, he was still an effective player. Like if you look at his stats that year, it wasn't like he was along for the ride. And yeah.
0: I think ball. he scored 20 goals.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So he was still a fine player. Yeah. And in those days, and in those years, 20 goals was a big freaking deal. Cause it was clutch and grab uh, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was, uh, A top six forward on one final four, the uh, 2000 Avalanche team. He was uh, a top six forward by points on one final four, the 94 Leafs. Um, So that was the back to back years that Leafs made the final four and then lost to the Kings. And then the next year they lost to the Canucks back when the Leafs used to be in the Western Conference.
0: Yeah, because Toronto is really far west.
1: Yes, well, you know what? It made for good hockey. Um, Yeah. and that was a weird era with the, the Leafs, Detroit, Chicago, all in the West. You're like, you guys aren't very far West. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's just with the Eastern sort of slant of where the population is. The, yeah. you know, any team that's basically West of like Pittsburgh is, could be considered West. <laughs> um, he was a top six forward uh, by points on one world championship bronze medalist. And he was the best forward by points, more than Lemieux, on uh, one World Junior Championship bronze medalist, the '83 Canada team.
0: I just had to get that in there because no,
1: no, no, more than Lemieux is like it's got to be crazy, right? I mean... Yeah,
0: yeah. I I when I saw that, I was like, wait. I mean, presumably Lemieux was 12. <laughs> well, yeah. For one thing, Lemieux was younger, but also, uh, my guess would be if if they counted third assists, Lemieux probably would have had more points than andrew chuck yeah. <laughs> presumably lemieux touched the puck more than andrew
1: you would, chuck you would assume, but you know what if if that was so yeah if that was the 83 canada team then andrew chuck had already been drafted yeah he wouldn't be drafted until 84 so he must have been yeah he
0: was, he was young. young yeah
1: he must have been maybe 16 on that team and yeah yeah for sure oh team. yeah
0: he was probably like yeah like should have been on the under 18 team instead of the world juniors and, and was on there. So, um, I, when years ago, when I first started like making writing angry rants about who wasn't in the hall of fame, I was very much on the, uh, Andrew Chuck should be in the hall of fame bandwagon. Um, for a couple reasons, one of which was because of the the power play goal record. Um, but also, uh, 'Cause I, I don't know if this is I I say this in ignorance because I didn't watch hockey prior to Andrew Chuck playing, but I feel like he helped develop the idea of sort of the like expert garbage goal scorer, you know, the person who stands in front of the net and tips and, and rebounds and stuff, and which has become a very prized role. And I don't I'm sure there are people who did that well before he did, but he's the first person I remember noticing. Um and, you know, that has really become a, a thing now. Like People people have realized that that is an advantageous way to play. And, you know, um, Holmstrom, Ryan Smith had careers out of this.
1: Oh, yeah. Brandon Gallagher's having one right now. Yeah.
0: yeah. But looking at his resume and then thinking about Pierre Turgeon mm-hmm. and how I had doubts about Pierre Turgeon, I was just like, wow. I, I wasn't sure Pierre Turgeon belonged. How could I have ever been sure Andrew Chuk belonged? Yeah. Because if you don't look at his his career totals and the fact that he played for forever, yeah. um like fifth most games most games played in history, um his his is he was never a dominant offensive player ever. Um, you know, we have the like he was he was a, a top ten offensive player uh by offensive point shares once in his career. He was top ten in goals per game once. Like this is and and not even and that and that put him in top ten points once, but not top ten points per game even. Uh, or sorry, top ten points twice. Um, anyway I I have like Serious doubts that I didn't used to have. Um,
1: yeah, it's, uh, you know what, it's it's interesting because he's not, he was never a flashy player. Um, but he played a very important role on a lot of teams and did it very well. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, even if you get a ton of power play time, you're the guy who spends a lot of time in front of the net. If you're scoring 50 goals a year, you've got to be doing something right. because I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Holmstrom was like the legendary, you know, for the whole that Detroit team played such a key role of just you're going to be the guy in front. You're going to set up shop. You're going to look down at your feet to make sure you're not in the crease. And then you're just going to stand there and blind the goalie and, you know, Lindstrom will rip one past them or you'll tip it or you'll get the rebound. But he, he never scored that many goals because he wasn't that good at getting to the rebounds. He wasn't yeah. that good at tipping the puck in, whereas a guy like Andrew Chuck, you know, would go to the front of the net, but everything like he would tip it, like tipping the puck so hard too. I mean, like the hand eye, you need to be able to do that. And, you know, if if he sort of maybe not created that role, but did it extremely well, there's definitely something to be said for that.
0: Oh, uh, absolutely.
1: And you know the fact that he was able to consistently score a bunch of points by playing that role is is pretty impressive. But there's just no flash to his game that I – I couldn't remember a single goal that he's – like I looked at a highlight reel. I'm like, I don't remember a single one of these goals. Like I never saw like a coast-to-coaster. I don't remember any gorgeous goals or even – I don't even remember him scoring any particularly big goals. Um, Yeah. He's just sort of like that guy who was always the – that extra, not, I don't want to say the extra guy. Um, he wasn't, he wasn't the Renberg to the rest of the Legion of doom. Um, <laughs> and you know what? Mikko Renberg is a very good player and he did an important, he played an important role on that line, but I feel like Andrew Check was maybe even a little bit better than that, but he did it in so many cities that you're like, you know, he keeps changing teams, but he keeps putting the puck in the net. And maybe he never hit the heights of being with those great Leafs teams of 93, and 94, but he always consistently was putting in, you know, 30, 30-ish goals a year, maybe even 40-some years, and just by doing the right things, being in the right spot on the power play, getting to the rebounds before anybody else. It's like, it, it, it sounds like an easy philosophy, and, you know, like um, you can call them garbage goals if you want, but not a lot of guys seem to be able to do it consistently.
0: Yeah, and listen, I think there's definitely a case And I think the case is built around what you're saying about how he had a very unique skill, Mm -hmm. um, which has become like, like I said earlier, I don't know how many people did it before him. Um, But I know people have done it since. Um, And like you said, not necessarily as well. Um, And I think the other thing it's based on is, is this idea of like, you know, Where do we cut the line off for people who have just managed to be really, really damn healthy? Because, frankly, this guy is uh, he's he's top 15 in goals all time, and he's top five in games played. Like, do do we really want to say that someone who is top five in games played and and top 15 in goals doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame? I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that that being said i also look at his peak and i look at how he he really just was extremely consistent for a very very long time and i go i i don't like i don't know because like i'm torn and i know that there are other players out there who elicit similar feelings in in other people who have even better you know either better peaks or like better, like say more, say more total points, for example, rather than goals. Like energy has more goals than a lot of people because he, you know, his goals and assists are really similar, but there are a lot of guys who, who say have a few, you know, 40 or hundred less goals, but it'll have like an extra 150 or 200 assists or something. And, and, you know, just going off that, they might, um, they might get a little more consideration by some people. I don't know. I, I'm. I'm just. I don't necessarily think he doesn't belong. I just. I am. I find myself much more torn than I was remembering. Like I certainly didn't feel this way when I was younger. And when I was just going over the resume again, especially thinking about our conversation about Pierre Turgeon, I was like, "Wow, the case is like he is very much." I think he's one of these players who, like, he really is a test for this this new era of like. uh, putting aside his unique skill for a second, he's a real test of this new era of like super, super um, healthy uh, players with tons of longevity. You know, where do you, how much are you willing to say reward longevity versus the guys who couldn't play anywhere near as long? Like, not that the Sidines are in any way comparable, but the Sadines played far less than Anderchuck did. But yeah. they at least had each one of them had a year where they were arguably the best forward or very close to one of the best couple forwards in the league. Anderchuck was never, ever in that conversation. Um and and that's and I'm okay with rewarding both. Personally, like I'm okay with rewarding longevity on the one hand and 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 you know, peak greatness on the other. I just don't know where to draw the individual lines. And I think Andrew Juk poses, you know, questions about that for me.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's, um, I think we get into a, a, a an area of players where um, I think we said a, sort of a similar thing about Mark Reckie. Um yeah. We said a similar thing about Pierre Turgeon where you're like, You know what? I I don't know that this guy belongs because he was never great. Where I'm like, that guy's the best player in the NHL, or even maybe even the best player on his team.
0: But in in defense, yeah, in defense of Mark Recchi and Pierre Turgeon, though, they both had years where they where they they were very and Pierre Turgeon, particular as we talked about last episode, Turgeon had that one year where he he was like 50, he outscored his teammate by like 50 points, yeah. you know? And, and, and i not realized that when I'd done the research and then when we were talking about it, I realized that, but like that, that's, that's something like a differentiating factor that I can like focus on. Whereas like, Anderchuk never, like when he led teams in points, not only were they not great teams, but they were, you know, he wasn't like leading the team in points by like 25 points or something, right? Like, he was ahead by a couple. Yeah. Partly because it probably the reason he led the team in points is because his center got hurt partway through the year and didn't, yeah. you know, didn't play any two games.
1: Yeah. But it's, um, I, guess, I guess like that longevity for a lot of players, if it's not for the longevity, they probably don't get in or you yeah. don't consider them getting in. But because they just did very good. For a very long time without a big drop off, it just sort of the stats add up, and you're like, yeah, that guy was just so consistently, you know, even in the clutch and grab era, a 20 goal scorer, like at the absolute minimum. Um, What did I say,
0: 13 years? uh, 19, 19 times. Bonkers.
1: 19 times. I mean, like, and you can see it even the tail end of his career. He has uh, one the last uh, half season there that he played for Tampa Bay. He only had six goals in 42 games. But the season before that, you know, 21, 20, 21, 20. And he's pretty old at that point, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and that's, again, the clutch and grab era. Like yep. still in the, like the heart of it. And he's he's his last five seasons before, his last five full seasons were 20, 20, 21, 20, 21. So, yeah. I mean, like, that's as consistent as you can possibly get. Yeah. And just kept doing that, you know. Um, had, you know, that uh, his peak years, uh, 93 and... Um, well, I guess you could say... Yeah, 93 and 94 were really his peak. Yeah. And I guess you can include 95, but it's only a 48-game season. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he has... For 92-93, he has uh, uh, 54 goals uh, split between uh, Buffalo and Toronto.
0: Yeah.
1: When he came to Toronto that year that they almost went to the Cup, he had 25 goals in 31 games. Yeah. Finally playing with somebody awesome like Doug Gilmore. (laughs) And then had 12 goals in 21 playoff games that year. I mean, he was a goal-scoring machine. Which I think is why a lot of people, like a lot of people in Toronto, still love him to this day. And then the next year he follows that up with a full season in Toronto. He scores 53 goals. Um, I know that's a, a very high-scoring era, but those are still pretty amazing stats. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and it, basically, no matter. Yeah, what like, he's I, always been a good goal scorer.
0: Um, and 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 as I said before, just to. To oh one other thing I was gonna say is he's a bit like he, he is very much like almost like the poor man's Mike Gartner in the sense that like I mean not that they're similar styles of player necessarily, but they both have like the the huge goal totals, but then you look at their actual like individual peaks and you go like, Whoa, that's not you know like Mike Gartner I believe scored hundred points at least once, right? I think. Maybe not. I don't know. He might not have I could actually you might not have. Um, but the fact that Andrew Chuck never scored a uh, hundred points, even 1993 when like everybody scored a hundred points, um, you know, that I, makes I, you say
1: in all fairness, I think he had 99. So it's he, did, like he had
0: 40. 99, two years in a row. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, but you know, round numbers matter more. Yeah, obviously. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know. I, I I, uh, I, I guess I can see both sides and, uh, I'm I'm certainly okay with the fact that he's in the Hall of Fame. I I because I think it not having the guy who is like you know 13th all time in goals in the Hall of Fame would be really weird. On yeah. the other hand, the Hall of Fame has people in the top 10 in goals per game not in the Hall of Fame, no, yeah. points per game, one or the other, which is ridiculous. So go figure. But um, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm. I'm okay with it, but I feel like if you're if you're someone who supports a more exclusive Hall of Fame, like he's got to be a problem because he doesn't have that like peak era greatness in the total points. You know, he does have the like you said he's got the 50 goal seasons and in those years he was in the top one year he was in the top 5. Um, which is something. Uh, anyway, I, I, I just think he's he's definitely like he's one of those bubble cases where like you can argue on certain criteria that he absolutely belongs, and you can also make a case, not necessarily one that I would agree with, but a case that he doesn't belong.
1: I, I I would agree that if you if you were gonna do the very exclusive Hall of Fame where just being very good is not gonna get you in, kind of thing, if you weren't a top, top player. During your era, then I would agree with that. Um, given based on who's already in, I think it's probably fair to put him in.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely based on that for sure. Yeah. There so are I, people in the Hall of Fame who have less impressive careers than David and yeah, for sure.
1: I mean, just to to just there's something to be said for doing it that well for that long. And yeah. if we're gonna start including, if we uh, if we have been including people who had very long very good careers without the individual brilliance of maybe winning a bunch of art Ross trophies or winning a bunch of cups and clearly being one of the best players in the league, then, you know, he's, he's deserving in that because he really just did do it for a very long time.
0: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we move on to our old timer.
1: Yes. Uh, by uh, the way, Mike Gardner did have a hundred points in a season. Was okay. One hundred two eighty
0: four eighty five.
1: 84,
0: 85. Okay. I couldn't remember. Um, so we have uh edward lalonde as our um as our old timer this week he, he is uh at least by birth date the next major um hockey great offensive great i should say after um uh cyclone taylor and unlike cyclone taylor he did play in the nhl for six seasons um he did unfortunately he played in a bunch of leagues so <laughs> Much like the Sedin's, there's going to be some stats. Um, and uh, he, he, uh, we decided we skipped a couple other guys in between who were either in the hall or not in the hall because they had basically NHA, uh, National Hockey Association careers with very little uh, NHL playing time. Or they, if they did play in the NHL, they weren't really stars, whereas Newsy was a star pretty much everywhere. So that's why we're talking about him and why we moved on to him next. And so without further ado, uh, he played in the NHL from 1917 until 1922. So six seasons, um, five quality based on uh, modern standards of uh, points per game, uh, 0.5 points per game. He also came back briefly for one game in 1926-27, but I haven't included that. Um, that one game, which bumped everything down. Um, When he was transferred from the NHL to the WCHL, he had 125 goals, which put him at third all time. He had 41 assists, which put him at fourth all time. And he had 166 points, which put him at third all time in 99 games. And he had 22.3 point shares, which put him third all time. Uh, When he was transferred from that league, Uh, He was second in goals per game and points per game and third in assists per game all time. If the qualifier is set to a single modern season, uh, Newsy is first all time in goals per game and third in points per game. Of course, that's absurd, but I just wanted to mention it. Um, When he was transferred out of the league, he was second all time in offensive point shares. So basically the second best offensive player of the era, uh, at least by offensive point shares. Um, his 82-game average was an absurd 103 goals, 34 assists for 138 points. <laughs> Things have changed. Um, His three-year peak from 1917 to 1920, it was a 24-game average. The series, seasons were 24 games of 37 goals and 12 assists for 49 points or over two points a game. In the playoffs, he scored 15 goals and 4 assists uh, for 19 points in seven total games. Uh, That was back... Uh, the NHL didn't have a lot of playoffs, and those are only his playoff, NHL playoff numbers, not the Stanley Cup numbers. Um, Lalonde was the career leader in playoff goals until 1927, despite the fact that he was out of the league in 1922. And he was the career leader in playoff points until 1932, so 10 years after he left the NHL. Um, his adjusted numbers are 170 goals, 206 assists for 376 points. And uh, that gets really screwy because the NHL, of course, didn't count the second assist until, I think, 1929 or 1930 or something like that. So when they're adjusting for era with the guys who played before the secondary assist, they tend to invent them for them, which is why he has such crazy numbers. Um, So you can't really trust it. Um, His adjusted 82 game average is 141 goals, 171 assists, for 311 points good season, I heard. So uh, that's not real. Um, And he is first all-time in adjusted points per game if the qualifier is lowered to the 99 games he played, which is obviously absurd. But once again, just wanted to mention it. Um, He was never traded within the NHL, but of course he was traded out of the NHL. Uh, In the National Hockey Association, he played seven seasons from 1909 to 1911 and again from 1912 to 1917. They were all quality he scored 164 goals which is probably second all-time he had 21 assists which just goes to show you it was a different era which probably puts him at ninth all-time for an entire league 21 assists it's pretty funny (laughs) um he scored 185 points which is probably second all-time in 108 games which is probably as high as ninth all-time he's probably first all-time in goals per game He is probably six all-time in assists per game, and he's probably second all-time in points per game. If the qualifier is set to 100 games, which is at least nine players, but I'm not sure. If we reduce the qualifier to 30 games, it only lowers his APG rank by one, and he's still uh, first all-time in goals per game and second in points per game. His 15-game average, which is about the length of an NHL season, is 23 goals and three assists for 26 points. And his his NHA playoff numbers were one assist for one point in two games because the NHA didn't have playoffs until near the end of its existence. They would just play for, they play regular season and then the champion would play for the cup. Um, The WCHL, he was also in uh, from 1922 to 1926, so four seasons and three of them quality. He scored 48 goals, which is probably 12th all-time, 20 assists, which is probably 12th all-time, and 68 points, which is probably 11th all-time in 75 games total. If the qualifier is set to his 75 games played, he is probably six all-time in goals per game, 7th all-time in assists per game, and six all-time in points per game. His 30-game average in the WCHL is 19 goals, 8 assists for 27 points, so slightly less than a point per game player there. It's worth knowing that by this point, the scoring had started to drop as well, so it wasn't as absurd as it was in the early days of the NHL and, and in the NHA. He was also in the PCHA, the Pacific Coast Hockey Association, from 1911 to 1912, and he scored 27 goals in 15 games and led the league in goals that year. I don't think they counted assists. He was in four other pro leagues, one of which the IHL, he uh, scored 29 goals and forces for 33 points in 18 games. Uh, The MPHL, he played one game. The OPHL, he played 20 games, and he scored 61 goals in 20 games. And uh, then he played in the TPHL, which I don't even remember which one that was, um, and three goals in his one and only game there. So played in a lot of leagues, was almost always one of the best players. Basically.
1: Yeah. Um, so we'll move on to his accomplishments. Um, worth noting that New Zealand Lone was considered to be the original flying Frenchman. And uh, can you guess how he acquired the Newsy moniker? Because his real name was Edouard Cyril Lland.
0: Um, I don't remember.
1: He worked in a newspaper. Oh, yeah, that's right. Of course. He became Newsy. Yes. Um, I do enjoy the old-timey nickname.
0: And then he starred in a musical.
1: Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> yes good old um, so uh, his accomplishments the best player by point shares once in 1921 top 5 thrice when uh, f- also in uh, 1919 and 1920 top 10 4 times so you would add 1918 to those previous years mentioned uh, the best offensive player by offensive point shares thrice 1920 and 21 top 5 4 times Uh, 1918 he scored 35 goals once one of only four players to ever do this uh at his departure from the nhl 30 goals twice one of only four players ever at his departure 20 goals four times one of only two players ever at his departure he led the league in goals once was top five four times he led the league in goals per game once was top five four times he tied the single season record for assists in 1918 1919 was top five in assists twice and top 10 four times. He led the league in assists per game once, was top five twice, he was top 10 thrice. He set the single season record in assists per game in 1918-19, but lost it the season after. He was top five twice and top 10 thrice. Uh, He led the league in points twice and was top five four times. He led the league in in, uh, points per game once and was top five four times. In the NHA, he led the league in goals twice, was top five thrice, was top 10. Uh, I, don't,
0: I don't know. Let's uh, say six times.
1: Let's say six times because that's what he He led the league in goals per game twice, top five five times, and top 10 at least six times. He was probably top 10 in assists per game thrice. He led the league in points uh, at least once. Um, he was top five twice and top 10 six times he led the league in points per game once, top five four times, top ten at least six times. In the WCHL, he led the league in goals once, and was top ten, at least twice. He led the league in goals per game, at least once, he was top ten at least twice. He led the league in assists per game, at least once. He was top five in points once and top ten twice. He led the league in points per game once, and top five at least twice. In the PCHA, he led the PCHA in goals once, he led the PCHA in points once, so you can see from the uh, the long list of his accomplishments, he's always a top player, no matter what league he's playing in. He's always a top five or top ten or leading the league in so many different uh, stat categories that he's clearly one of the best players of his era.
0: It's kind of overwhelming. Yeah. Um. And I would and and before I get to the great teams, I just want to say that if I wasn't aware of how Redonculus, Joe Malone's numbers are too,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which are like, I mean, it's basically when we talk about it, it's like between him and Newsy as to who was the, the most dominant player of this era. I think um, it is, I mean, uh, of the very early years of the NHL, because pretty soon side identity shows up too. But um, it's like just re- hearing you read them out and me reading the other ones out it's ridiculous yeah like how how uh how many like leaderboards he's on and stuff so um great teams the Stanley Cup was a challenge trophy for his entire career so keeping that in mind he was the best player uh he, by that i mean he mm-hmm. led the nhl playoffs in goals setting the record which held up until 1944 and setting the record in goals per game which has actually never been surpassed uh 2.2 playoff uh gpg has not been passed by even Gretzky um, and led the NHL playoffs in points setting the record, which held up until 1939 and his points per game uh, record held up until 1985 until it was beaten by Gretzky. And he did all that on one um, team that didn't win the Stanley cup, believe it or not, because it was the 1919 Canadians and that series was canceled due to the flu. As we talked about the flu that killed Joe Hall. Um, So he had a, uh, it was a very, but the the thing to remember there is all those records seem really impressive, except for the fact that it was a really small sample size and it was probably like five games. <laughs> so it seems really impressive until you remember. Um, he, and he was the best player on the twenty uh, in the nineteen eighteen Canadians as well, who did win the Stanley Cup. Uh, or no, sorry, who uh, didn't even? Um, my apologies, they didn't even win the league championship. Um. But he led the NHL playoffs in all offensive categories. But then the next year, he destroyed his own records. He was also the player coach of um, a Stanley Cup champion from the National Hockey Association, the 2016 Canadians, and uh, on one runner-up, the 2017 Habs, uh, back when they were in the good old days when they were player coaches. And then finally, he was a top three forward um, on one Stanley Cup runner-up, the uh, 1908 Professionals, who were his, uh, I believe that was his PCHA team. No, it wasn't. It was his TPHL team, whatever the TPHL is. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, so he, he has ridiculous, ridiculous NHL playoff stats, but a couple of them, the uh, the per-game ones seem ridiculous because the sample is short, though his his actual goal and point totals held up for decades as well, which says something. Anyway, Um I I mean his 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 career was bonkers. It's just ever since I learned about him I was just like is this this he seems like a video game character.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh with stats like that, I mean it's it has a lot to do with the era in which he's playing. Yeah. Um but I mean the guy's clearly just a dominant player where no matter what league he's playing and no matter what team he's playing for, he's going to be one of the top guys in the league. Um, whether, whether his team is good or not.
0: It's one of those things that makes me wonder. And I, I know we talked about this in the past, but I do wonder without, and I obviously can't know this because like, there's no footage of these games, I'm sure. But like, if people like him and Cyclone Taylor and Joe Malone just could skate and on the, on the shitty skates and no one else could. And that's why they are so much better. I mean, I'm not saying they weren't skilled, but I just wonder if that's, yeah, one of the reasons they were so so, like year after year you know like because there are a number of players even players who are in the hall of fame now who played in the same era who just don't have anywhere near like if you look at like um like someone like lalonde he he played in in tons of different leagues and everywhere he went he was you know a bit of a higher gun i guess Everywhere he went, he was a dominant player. There are guys who are in the Hall of Fame from back then who we, some of whom we're just not talking about because, frankly, their careers were not... It's hard to tell how spectacular their careers are because their stats aren't... It's hard to find their stats. But who were not star, offensive stars like this everywhere. And, and I, I do wonder, like, you know, to what degree just being better at things like balance, you know, made you in terms of in terms of the game back then since everything was so primitive.
1: Yeah, well that's it. I mean it's um you know I guess we'll we'll sort of never know the way you know we see the like when they sort of recreate old timey hockey and it looks very sort of just, oh here he comes and he just takes one shot and it goes right in. It's like, oh he just slid it along the ice but it's like
0: yeah. You
1: know, with I don't think today's technology, of course, they'd be able to do the stuff the players today do, which they didn't have access to it.
0: I mean, I'm not sure anyone would say, you know, a team made up of like these guys would beat a modern team. But they they also did have to work with equipment and and you know, ice conditions and things that were quite primitive and and i think there's you know a uh, yes absolutely they the the era had an absurd uh, absurd weird scores you know they scored tons especially in that first nhl season they scored a ton of goals yeah. um and you know they didn't really track assists very much and when they did they only tracked one and so the point totals are all out of whack and everything but i think they also you know there's 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 a place for these guys in this sort of like it's, I don't know. I, I, I find it so fun going back and like looking at these bonkers numbers where like, you know, scored however many points he scored in that first playoff. And like, no one touched it until, uh, what'd I say? 1939. Yeah. 20 years. Like, what?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the guy was just a phenomenal athlete, too. It's like, uh, you know, like like you were saying before. You know, if a, if a team of modern players played against these guys, there's no, we don't know that these guys would beat the crap out of them because we don't know how good they actually were. But I bet you, if you put, you know, cr- the Pittsburgh Penguins in all that old timey crappy equipment and watch them, you'd be like, wow, these guys are really not that good. And then yeah, those yeah. Guys, and those guys, having been used to that equipment, would probably at least for a little while. Sort of skate circles around them until they figured it out um it's just the equipment is bad i mean but you know a, a good athlete i think in any era is a good athlete yeah. um and lalone was not just good he was absolutely dominant um and he wasn't just good at hockey either he was a like a really really prominent lacrosse player um he was he was actually voted the the best lacrosse player of the first half of the 19th uh, area of the 20th century um, I did not know that. Yeah, he was uh, hired to play out in Vancouver and made uh, made more money than he made playing for the Canadians at one point. Um, That's funny. Yeah, um, basically, like there was actually more money to be had in lacrosse because the NHL wasn't really a thing yet. Yeah. Um, and so he just went out there and scored a whole bunch of goals playing as a lacrosse player, and was a very, very well-known lacrosse player. One. Uh, won the Minto Cup a whole bunch of times um, and you know was just generally regarded as the best player and uh, when they did the voting for the greatest lacrosse player the first half of the 20th century he got 13 votes and that's more than the second and third place finishers combined wow Um, and that was voted on in 1950 Um, I mean he was yeah he was just a fantastic athlete no matter what he was doing right so
0: yeah and and that's uh i didn't i didn't look that part up and didn't know it but like um it just goes to show you that like you know it's it's further proof that he is it's not just a product of like you said it's it yes i mean they might not have known some of the things that uh you know, that might not have some of the skills that players do now, and they certainly wouldn't have had the level of conditioning, but if he was able to dominate in lacrosse as well, I mean, he was just very clearly just an absolutely elite athlete at the time. And like, I mean, we'll, I can't remember um uh, numbers off the top of my head, aside from the infamous 44 goals in in 20 games or whatever 22 games whatever it was that he first scored that first season but like um you know he he really it's when i see lund's stats by themselves i it's tempting to think he was the first absolute star of the nhl you know um except for the fact that he got outscored in that first season in terms of goals and it's funny cuz he and like i think malone uh, had had more um we, we'll talk about this more when we get to him. But I think Malone had injury problems, and so, you know, he would have the, this incredible year, and then he'd be hurt, and then Malone would have this incredible year, and then um, would have a bit of a down year. Malone come, would come back, and like they'd alternate who's who's leading the league. But like, it's just like looking at this resume. It's like this, you know, this guy was like, it's hard, it's hard even knowing what Malone did to look at this and not think this is the greatest hockey player of all time up to this point. And I think that when I actually look at Malone's stats, I may change my mind. We'll see. But, like, it's hard not to think that, I feel like. Because they're bonkers numbers.
1: Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Like, I mean, uh, you know, it it took until Maurice Richard scored, like, 500 goals to break how many goals he scored, if you include all the leagues that he played in. I mean, he just scored and scored and scored um yeah. and you know apparently was really well known for having the best shot in hockey um while well, there was him and Didier Petra, who we've spoken about had like these yeah. legendary hard shots um but uh but apparently Lalonde used to sort of have like a really wicked way of putting it sort of like right between the goalie's um the goalie's glove and his so the goalie sort of would be like, ah, I don't know what to do, and like sort of catch him, sort of the way, you know, when a guy shoots just over the goalie's pad, you know, and it's like, oh, it's almost yeah. impossible to stop, sort of. Um, that's sort of the thing. And then teams would, you know, put shadows on him and try to get three or four guys to try to go just beat the crap out of him so he couldn't get his shot off. But if he got it off, pretty much it went in. So um, at least that's, you know, the sort of what the stories. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. As you're saying, we always, we have to take that stuff with a grain of salt. It's a story. It's always a story, but all right. Um, I don't have anything else to say about him. If you don't, I do not. Yeah. All right. Uh, So uh, that's, that's another episode for us. And uh, we will be back with another episode uh, with players. We haven't yet figured out um, shortly. And uh, uh, thank you again for listening and we will see you next time.
1: Take care. Have a good one.